Hi, I'm Michael Gerhardt, a constitutional law professor at the University of North Carolina, and I have the honor of being the scholar in residence at the National Constitution Center. Welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Our president and CEO, Jeffrey Rosen, is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In today's show, we examine one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of the week and perhaps of the last several years. When religious belief conflicts with state or federal law or with another constitutional right, which claim wins out? The news this week has been dominated by the story of Kentucky court clerk Kim Davis, who was imprisoned for refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. She was released on September 9th with the order not to interfere with her deputy clerks who are now issuing those licenses. And on August 31st, Judge Richard Leon of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia ruled in March for Life versus Burwell, one of several challenges to the Affordable Care Act's so-called contraceptive mandate. In fact, just last week, five judges on the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit issued a sharp dissent to the court's decision not to rehear a separate challenge brought by the Little Sisters of the Poor. The judges said the ruling upholding the mandate is, quote, contrary to all precedent concerning the free exercise of religion, unquote. Joining us to provide context and commentary are two terrific guests. First, Matt Bowman. He is senior legal counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he works primarily on sanctity of life cases. Matt is also lead attorney in the March for Life case. And Ian Milheiser. He's senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on the Constitution and the, ju the judiciary. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. It's good to thank be here. You, Thanks so much. And so let me just jump right in. Matt, if you don't mind, could you describe for us briefly sort of the general constitutional framework in which claims about religious liberty arise and then particularly get into a discussion about the recent Hobby Lobby decision? Sure. I think what we're seeing in the upheavals in recent years about religious liberty and liberty in general is prompted by an ever-expanding government, particularly the federal government. And you have the government reaching into people's everyday lives and co-opting them to do the government's bidding and to do it on very controversial issues such as abortion or birth control or the definition of marriage. And so when you have the cases come along with the controversy that led to the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision, you had people on the government side saying, well, this is a question of discrimination. But the people who were simply business people trying to live their faith in their daily life were saying, all we want is the government to leave us alone here, but the government is forcing us to provide these items to other private citizens, to buy these things for other people, uh, these things that we consider can cause early abortion, and that the government itself and, and even the government's advocates ultimately admit would justify a, a mandate of surgical abortion itself. And we just want to be left out of that. And, uh, and so because American tradition has long valued religious liberty, uh, it's coming to a head. Uh, because I think of the, the government's overreach, and now there's this tension between whether the, our tradition of respecting religious liberty is also going to be swallowed up by the government's agenda. Ian, what's your understanding of the Hobby Lobby decision and the cases that have followed it? 
Uh, sure. So, I mean, I think my first point of disagreement with Matt is he gives the impression that this tension between the role of government in a civil society and the role of religious exemptions, as if it is something that emerged from Zeus's head sometime around the time that Hobby Lobby was filed. And this is a tension that has existed for a very long time. Um, you know, it existed in the 1960s when um, the government said there could not be race discrimination and someone sued claiming they had a religious liberty right to discriminate on the basis of race. It arose in the 1980s when there was a Christian um, private school that had very particular views about the role of men and wife, uh, men and women in a marriage. And um, they sued, claiming that that trumped um, laws forbidding gender discrimination. It's come up time and time again. You know, it's come up in the context of the minimum wage, in the context of um, overtime laws. So th this is a, you know, this is a, not a new thing. Um, what is new? is that the general rule, especially in the business context, had been that a religious objector does not get to use their objection in order to, to reduce the rights of third parties. You know, that was the holding of the, the Supreme Court in the United States v. Lee when they said that when followers of a particular sect enter into commercial activity, this again is the Supreme Court's words, um, the limits they accept on their own conduct as a matter of conscience and faith are not to be superimposed onto the statutory schemes which are binding on others in that activity. Um, Hobby Lobby displaced that balance, and we're now in a very different world than we were before Hobby Lobby, because there's now a question as of in this universe how far the Supreme Court's going to take this new world where religious objectors can use their religious objections in order to diminish someone else's rights. Uh, let me pick up from where you left off, Ian, and go back to you, Matt, with a question. So let's let's return a little bit to Hobby Lobby. And Matt, I would just want to sort of press you a little bit further on the sort of general framework. So if government gives more accommodations to religion or more exceptions, um, does that run into the constitutional prohibition against the establishment of religion? One of the longstanding tensions in American constitutional law is between government being prohibited from establishing religion on the one hand and on the other hand guaranteeing free exercise. So you've, you've both been talking, you particularly mad about free exercise, but the more government might help it, does it run into a problem with establishment? And I think the, the question itself illustrates the point that I make. The only way that someone could say that when the government gives people freedom, the government has established something, is if the people's actions themselves don't belong to themselves as, as liberty, but that the government possesses people. And so what they do is somehow an establishment of religion if the government lets them do it. And that's just reversing the, the definition of what freedom uh, not only means in common sense, but in American tradition. And uh, this recent case of March for Life uh, that, that was decided on August 31st illustrates, I think, the, the, the flaw in Ian's summary of this, because March for Life is not a business. It's a nonprofit organization. It's a pro-life organization. It runs the largest uh, march uh, every year, certainly in the United States. So, so Matt, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit? Matt, if you don't mind, and, tell us a little, a little bit about the case. That's all. Just uh, yes. what, how the uh, issues frame. March, march for Life is uh, is is a, a, an organization that runs the largest pro-life march uh, in the country every year. It's a, it's a nonprofit organization. It's very small, only six employees. And all the employees there, obviously, are, are absolutely dedicated to March for Life's 
views. It's an expressive organization. It's not a business. And and the, and so the people in this business have been told by Obamacare, along with most of the rest of the country, that if you're going to have health insurance for your employees, it's got to cover items, uh, including contraception, including things that the government admits can prevent the implantation of a newly fertilized human embryo. And so in this case, what, what we have is that not a business but a nonprofit organization uh, who – who, with women who don't want these items. There's no third party, so-called, that Ian referred to that said, oh, well, these people will be harmed if you deprive these people. But the, the women at March for Life don't want the items. And yet uh, what, what Obamacare and its defenders, and uh, including Ian, are saying is they should have to provide it anyway. And I think that illustrates that these recent uh, upheavals in religious liberty and liberty are not uh, – they're, they're not part of the same uh, – format that we've seen of discrimination conflicts in the past, because now discrimination has been redefined so that if you don't do what the government wants you to do, buy things for other people, even for yourself that you don't want, you're now defined as a discriminator. So so if I understand you correctly, um, the argument in part is that the government's forcing people to do things that conflict with their religious beliefs. Uh, Ian, what's your, uh, could you talk a little bit about the District of Columbia District Judge's decision and whether you agree with it or not? Yeah, I'd be very surprised if this has any staying power or, frankly, if there's any other judge in the country that's willing to follow the same reasoning. Um, March for Life is not a religious liberty case. It is explicitly um, a non-religious liberty case. The, the, The issue in March for Life is that you had an employer which claims to be non-religious. Um, if they claim to be a religious employer, then they would simply have to fill out a form and they'd be exempt from the requirement to include um, birth control in their employer health plans. But they didn't want to claim to be a religious employer. And so they sued claiming, even though we don't have a religious objection, um, we think we should get, we should be completely exempt from the law anyway. Um, and this judge, Judge Leon, who has a history of ruling against the Obama administration, often on creative legal theories, um, said that they could they could claim non-religious liberty here. Now, there's many reasons why um, Judge Leon's opinion is wrong. I'll just point to the one that I can lay out in the briefest terms, which is the Supreme Court held in a case called Corporation of Presiding Bishops v. Amos that uh, when, and again, this is the Supreme Court's words, not mine, uh, when the government acts with the proper purpose of lifting a regulation that burdens the exercise of religion, there was, quote, no reason to require that the exemption come packaged with benefits to secular entities. Um, So this issue has come up in front of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has already rejected the argument that non-religious liberty is something that is protected. And I I am fully confident that Judge Leon's very unusual opinion is going to be reversed. So, Matt, is, is your case about non-religious liberty or religious liberty? How specifically is it about religious liberty? And, and from what does it derive? What, what's the source of that protection? Sure, and Ian is right. March for Life is not a religious organization. They oppose abortion because science says that an individual human being begins at fertilization and that human rights, as an ethical matter, not as a religious matter, belong to every human being. And they believe that for over 40 years. And what the federal government is doing now is saying, 
you know what, if you want to be a, a, a pro-life organization in this country, that's fine, but you still have to facilitate abortion. And what we're seeing, uh, and we're seeing this not just there, but in, in California, where the state of California has just said that churches themselves have to put surgical abortion in their health insurance plans, uh, even though that violates the federal law, the Obama administration has taken no action to correct that, despite a complaint that we filed. But in the March for Life case, uh, what, what Judge Leon recognized is that uh, the nature of the Obama administration's contraception mandate is one that makes it irrational to impose it on March for Life. Because the government's theory, if you will recall back in the Hobby Lobby case, the government's theory for why it had a compelling interest to force this mandate on people was that if women get this coverage in their plan, uh, they might choose to use contraception. If they choose to use it, the government claims there are health and equality benefits for those women. Uh, but the government also recognized that, well, because this mandate only helps women who, quote, want it, unquote, uh, we're going to exempt churches because their employees, quote, likely, unquote, don't want it. Well, in March for Life, and with Jeannie Mancini and Bethany Goodman, the employees there, uh, they, by definition, don't want these items. In fact, they are advocating every day uh, against these items. And, and uh, so a mandate for women who don't want it doesn't make any sense. And this is why uh, it confirms what I was suggesting before, that what used to be a question of, of, of legitimate cases of discrimination against people have now been redefined to say that we're not even talking about actual discrimination. We're talking about forcing things on people who don't want it uh, because we were, we're co-opting those people to advance the government's agenda, and then we're going to say that somehow there's a rational basis for doing this, and I think Judge Leon was correct to conclude that there is not. So, Ian, it, it sounds as if it may, there's, that this is more about moral objections than religious-based ones. Right. So, I mean, the, the answer to his point about how these folks don't want birth control, you know, I don't want to pay taxes, but we live in a civil society where people have certain obligations and the government has the power to bind us. Um, you know, what, we ha what the law has said and what the Constitution says to a certain degree is that religious exemptions do have some special status. There is the federal RIFRA law. There is the free exercise clause, and so our, our 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 traditions do recognize that there is some special status that you get um, if you have a religious objection to a law. Um, but if we expand that to say that you have non-religious liberty, um, that is a point potentially with no end. Then anyone who does not want to follow any law can object to it, and the courts will step will will step in and potentially strike it down. Um, now, I will note that it, you know, it's worth noting that that was actually not Judge Leon's reasoning in his opinion. Judge Leon's reasoning in his opinion actually owes very little um, ancestry to the court's religious liberty um, cases. That's because the court's religious liberty cases explicitly forbid the outcome that he reached. Instead, it resembles a kind of libertarian theory that um, has become very prominent amongst um, scholars on the libertarian far right. Um, it's this claim that whenever the government does much of anything at all, courts should make a very probing inquiry into whether what the government has done is um, in line with, 
with a valid justification for do or what the court views as a valid justification for doing it. That is an approach to judging that was scrapped in the 1930s, and for very good reason, because courts proved to be very bad at making those ki- those kinds of judgments. Um, so, you know, it, it's a strange opinion in two regards. It's a strange opinion in that it creates this new area of non-religious liberty that has never existed in any other a case that I'm familiar with and that the Supreme Court has explicitly said does not exist. And it does so by relying on, I mean, if I can use the, 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 the lawyerly term here, very Lochner-esque reasoning. Um, and, you know, and a, and a, and a type of um, – and it asserts a sort of judicial role that the Supreme Court has consistently said is not the role of the court since the 1930s. So, so Matt, I, I want to sort of pick up again where Ian left off, and let's, let, and let me just set a little groundwork here. So uh, obviously Ian just mentioned this. Um, the, the, um, we have a famous Supreme Court decision called Lochner, which recognized a fundamental right to contract. And basically what Lochner said is government can't interfere with private relations, such as an employer and employee, because it's going to violate the contract that they otherwise would have formed in the absence of governmental intervention. Um, is your case, Matt, about trying to bring Lochner back? That whole, which, which I think you both would agree has been overruled and isn't the law of the land anymore. But, but is your case really designed to do that? Yes, the ghost of Lochner gets trotted out any time someone uh, wins freedom from, from government coercion. In fact, the contraception mandate is not contained in Obamacare itself. Congress didn't pass it. It was created by bureaucrats uh, down the street at Health and Human Services. And when they create rules, the Administrative Procedure Act, which was passed by Congress, says that they have to have a rational basis for the rules. They can't be arbitrary and capricious. And so they can't say, for example, uh, that if you're going to have a mandate that only helps women who want it and that it's okay to exempt, and we will exempt people whose employees likely don't want it, then there can't be an arbitrary reason to deny uh, the exemption to women who uh, don't want it. And Judge Posner himself observed this in a case in the Seventh Circuit recently on equal protection grounds uh, uh, where, when he was considering an Indiana law uh, that treated atheists differently uh, than clergy. Uh, but the, 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 the thing that Ian is forgetting when he claims that, well, we really have only respected religious protections, religious freedom in this country, is that for decades, uh, certainly since Roe versus Wade, we have had statute after statute, dozens of statutes, saying you can object uh, to abortion, to being involved in abortion on uh, religious or moral grounds. We have had uh, the Supreme Court consider and rule in favor of people who objected to participating in, uh, in the draft, the military draft, uh, even uh, if their philosophy, even if it wasn't religious, but if it uh, was that if it held a, a similar place in one's, in one's life and in, in how one guides one's life as religion does. Uh, and so there's nothing new at all about uh, our tradition of protecting people's objection, both religious and moral. And there's nothing like the uh, uh, Obamacare mandate that, that relates to taxes, because, yes, we pay taxes even though we don't want to, but those taxes go to help some other people. The mandate for abortion pills in Obamacare by definition, by the government's own admission, only helps people who want it. And it's only for the benefit of the people who receive it. And, so, and yet, by, by attempting to impose it 
on March for Life and the women who don't want it, I think the Obama administration and its defenders are showing their hand that they're really not about helping third parties. They're about an imposing their ideology to the exclusion of organizations that might want to live uh, based on different beliefs. Yeah, I expect you, you do have a response to that, but I also want to bring you back to religion for a second, if it's okay. Um, let's assume we have facts like the Hobby Lobby case again, in which a business wants to cite religious grounds for not complying with a federal regulation or federal mandate. Do you, do you think government should provide some accommodation for religious objections? Do you think uh, that would be the, what, an appropriate response in that circumstance? Okay, so I'll, I'll get to that in okay. uh, I'll get to that in just a sec. I do want to respond to a few things that that, that that Matt said. I mean, one is I think we're talking about different cases here, because Judge Leon, in his opinion, explicitly said that he was not reaching any APA issues. He wrote an equal protection clause opinion. That was what he relied on the equal protection clause, and the equal protection clause does not support his reasoning. Now, if um, uh, another court reaches the APA question. The reason why the, uh, the the reason why the insurance rules comply with the APA, the reason why they are not arbitrary and capricious, is because we are talking about insurance. And the way that insurance works is that you get a whole bunch of people together. They all pay into a pool. Um, and then people who get sick or people who have medical needs can draw money out of that pool in order to co- in, in order to cover their care. I will I will probably never get cancer, but my money is going to that pool, and people who do have cancer will get to will get to take that money out. I I have to have a chronic disorder, Crohn's disease, that most people do not have, and yet insurance only works if everyone who does not have Crohn's disease has to pay money into that pool and ha- and um, then I can take money out to, for treatment for my condition. Um, so if we enter a world where someone can say, I don't want to pay for birth control, or I don't want to pay for cancer, or I don't want to pay for Crohn's disease, or I don't want to pay for whatever other you know, medical um, situation someone might have, then you don't have insurance. Then insurance becomes completely unworkable. And even if Matt wants to argue back that, well, you can create this little exemption to birth control and it's not going to be that big of a deal, that is not the test under the Equal Protection Clause. The test on the Equal Protection Clause is what is known as, a, as is the rational basis test. It is whether or not the government is capable of, or anyone is capable of articulating a rational reason why this regulation should exist. I just articulated one. Um, so, you, you know, this lawsuit, like I said, I don't expect it to have saying staying power. I congratulate Matt on finding the one judge in the country who was willing to rule in his favor. Um, you know, to, to the issue of accommodations, um, you know, that goes to the fundamental question of what Hobby Lobby was about. Because um, Hobby Lobby had all of this language pointing to an accommodation that existed for some employers. This is the so-called fill-out a the form option where um, an employer can say, I'm going to fill out a form saying I have, I'm a religious employer. I object to, um, having, to follow, um, having to provide um, contraception, and then the government will work with that, um, that employer's um, insurance provider to make sure their employees still have access to, to, to that coverage. Hobby Lobby very strongly suggested that this accommodation was acceptable. 
and this is now being litigated in multiple courts. Every court of appeals so far to weigh in on the question has said that this accommodation is is acceptable. And if ultimately what the fallout winds up being is that this accommodation works, then I think we will remember Hobby Lobby as you know a blip that did do something to rein in long long-standing law regarding the rights of third parties, but that ultimately I think provided you know reasonable protections to make sure that the, that third parties are protected. Um, if, however, the court um, strikes down the fill-out-the-form option, first of all, I think it calls into question the honesty of the Supreme Court, since there's so much language in the Hobby Lobby opinion suggesting that this accommodation is acceptable. Uh, but second of all, that says very ominous things about how far the Supreme Court is willing to go in tearing down the rights of third parties in order to um, accommodate the views of religious objectors. So, so Matt, um, I want to talk to you about accommodation, but it, I, I'm wondering whether or not, is that, are you seeking accommodation or are you seeking something more radical? It sounds to me like you're se- seeking something much more radical, because what Ian says about insurance could also apply to taxes. Um, taxes go to things we don't all support. It may go to a war we don't support. It may go to all... Uh, certain other governmental activities it may go to presidents we don't like. Um, so what? Do, so is that where your position leads ultimately to simply ha- for, for, uh, provide people the means by which they can file lawsuits to stop their money from going to government to do things it doesn't want it to do? And that's why Ian's description is is not a rational uh, description of what's happening. Uh, first of all, Judge Leon granted summary judgment to March for Life on its Administrative Procedure Act claim. Uh, so I don't know which opinion Ian was reading, but what's happening in in the March for Life case is that the, the March for Life and its employees aren't objecting to having insurance. They're objecting to their insurance covering these particular uh, abortion-related items. And Ian's position, just as Justice, uh, Justice Kennedy recognized in, in the oral argument in the Hobby Lobby case, would, would justify forcing people to cover late-term elective surgical abortion in their health insurance. And that's exactly what California is forcing churches themselves to do right now. And the Obama administration is thus far uh, ignoring federal law that would prohibit that. Uh, but, but the reason that uh, the description Ian gave is, is inaccurate is that there's nothing about the, uh, the contraception and abortion pill mandate that is undermined in even the slightest manner by the fact that some plans might not cover it and some might, because the mandate itself, again, as written not by Congress but, uh, but by the bureaucrats, the mandate itself says that it's perfectly fine if organizations whose women likely oppose these items that don't have this in their plan, in particular church groups and integrated auxiliaries of churches. And so there are thousands of groups that the mandate itself says no problem at all, no impact whatsoever on insurance or on whether other women get uh, coverage for these items if they happen to want them. There's no impact at all on this pool of money if we just allow churches to uh, omit these things from their plan. And so what is not correct about the Equal Protection Clause today, but what Judge Posner recognized in this Seventh Circuit case last year, is that you can't define a government requirement and then a government exemption and say, uh, well, here are two people, and they they were both in identical situations with respect to this exemption. It makes 
perfect sense to give this exemption to both of these people, but I'm going to give it to the first guy because he's religious, and I'm going to refuse it to the second guy because he's secular. That is an irrational basis under the Equal Protection Clause. Rational basis review does mean something. Uh, Judge Posner said so, and, and Judge Leon agreed with him. Ian, I, I gather you um, you would have a response to that, but, but and let me ask you also in your response to think about the following. I'm I'm, you know, I began by saying I'm a law professor, and we all know what that means. Um, I'm going off on the deep end here. Um, but one thing that I, I, I've been wondering about is a doctrine those of us in, who both teach law and practice law sometimes think about, it, and it's called standing. Is there, and standing means that the plaintiffs in a particular case have got to have a real interest at stake in a lawsuit in federal court. Um, do you, would you concede that Matt's group's got standing to raise claims about religious exemptions? Um, given the nature of his argument, I'm just curious if you could work that into your answer. Yeah, well, I mean, again, they aren't re- raising religious exemptions. They're raising non-religious exemptions. Um, um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see any reason. I mean, my understanding of their claim here is that they are buying a product that they don't want. And so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they probably have standing in this case. That's not the issue. The issue is that they don't have the substantive right that they claim. You know, they're, they're, they don't have a right. You know, the employer doesn't have the non-religious right that they claim. The employees do not have a right to individually exempt themselves from the items that they don't want to pay for in their in, in their insurance in, in their insurance plan. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I listen to Matt, and I hear someone making a policy argument. You know, Matt apparently thinks that it is bad policy that the, that the that the exemption that exists for church plans doesn't sweep broader. Um, and fortunately for Matt, he does have a remedy. There will be a, there will be an election coming up in 2016, and he will get to vote for a candidate who agrees with his view and probably disagrees with mine. That is the remedy that he has. Um, the remedy that he does not have. Um, and this is what the court recognized in the 1930s when they overruled the Lochner line of cases, is to say, I disagree with the, with, the, with the decision the government has made on policy grounds. Therefore, I am going to um, make a federal case out of it. Um, you know, the rational basis standard that I mentioned before is a very low bar, and it allows the government to say that we're going to have a narrow exemption and not a broader one because we have – a, you know, because we can articulate a reason why this works if it is done in a narrow way, but it doesn't work if it applies to everyone. Um, you know, the, the Administrative Procedure Act, the arbitrary and capriciousness standard isn't that much higher. Um, so again, you know, you know, I mean, it's not that Matt is without remedy here. He will get to vote in an election soon for a candidate who agrees with him. And, and if that candidate is elected, then that candidate will be empowered um, to make changes. Um, but what he does not get to do is go to court and bring a constitutional case based on a constitutional principle that doesn't exist. So, so Matt, I want, I want you to kind of uh, respond to Ian, but I'll also give you a question with, well, that you can use to respond to, use to respond with. Um, so I, I'm trying to f- also figure out if, if this is about getting an exception or an accommodation or whatever, how we wanted to talk about it, isn't Ian right that this is about a policy matter? And why isn't it, it, your claim um, better suited for a legislature or some policy maker than it is to a federal court? Well, the 
this was a, a ruling in the contraceptive mandate that wasn't created by Congress. It was created by administrative agents. And when they do that, Congress has said they're subject to uh, arbitrary and capricious review. They, they can't articulate a reason and then contradict their own reason. And that's what's happening in, in this case. And it's what shows that, that these cases about the Obamacare abortion pill contraception mandate are not uh, like the cases in the past of, uh, of racial conflict in the country. In fact, uh, they're a co-opting of that and a redefining of that to force people to advance the government's agenda. Because what the government itself said in, in pr promoting this mandate is that it only makes sense, it only helps anyone if it's given to women who want it, uh, and to such an extent that the, that the mandate itself wrote into itself a, 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 an, an opt-out, a, a total exemption for people whose employees likely oppose it uh, in, in various church groups. And that's the government's own rationale. So what, the, what, the, what Judge Leon's decision does not do is it does not say, uh, as Ian described it, uh, that the people at March for Life can just pick and choose everything in their plan and just not cover things in their plan. That is not, not, it's not in there at all. What it says is, with respect to this particular mandate, based on the government's own description of it, in which it only helps people who want it, in which people who likely oppose it are fine to be exempt, and there's no harm whatsoever to the insurance regime of the country, uh, if that's the kind of mandate we're talking about, then the government can't pick and choose between a religious person and a secular person and say, well, we're going to benefit the religious person in this way, and we're going to refuse the secular person the same benefit, even though they are otherwise identically situated. And this is what distinguishes this case from the case that Ian cited uh, in the Amos decision, because in that case, the attempt there wasn't to expand the religious exemption to people who worked in non-religious places. It was to shrink it. it was to, that was an establishment clause decision. They were trying to talk, to ask whether the government should, whether the exemption for religious groups should go away because it violates the Establishment Clause. That's what the Supreme Court said was not required by the Constitution. But we're looking at the flip side of it here. The flip side here is not whether the government can uh, exempt or respect religious liberty. It's whether it can do so and irrationally say that secular people, even though they're identically situated, according to the government's own rationale, can be treated uh, less favorably. That's what the Seventh Circuit very recently said is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, which is in the Constitution, and whose review of rational basis does have some meaning. So, you know, I want to take you back to one of the points you started with, which I think is also where Matt left off, and that is, the, the, is there a difference between religious-based objections and non-religious-based objections? Uh, well, certainly the Constitution says so, and, and certainly federal law says so. I, I, I mean, it's an interesting philosophical argument to have, um, you know, to say whether or not a moral objection that's rooted in something other than religious faith should, as a normative matter, be treated the same as something that's... Um, that is rooted in religious faith. You know, that, that is a fine topic for a law review article. Okay, thank you. Um, but, but we are bound by the Constitution that we actually have and by the statutes that we actually have. 
and the the United States Constitution actually has a free exercise clause. It doesn't actually have a non-religious liberty clause. You know, the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act actually is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and not the Non-Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I mean, I, I happen to think that as a normative matter, it would be too expansive if people were to have non-religious liberties of the kind that um, Matt is, is claiming in this case. But that's not the question presented by, uh, under the law. In a legal case, you go to court with the law and the Constitution you have and not the law and the Constitution that you want. And the law and the Constitution that we have does not allow for the kind of non-religious liberty assertions that um, that has made in this case. So, Matt, do you agree or disagree that a religious-based objection would get different treatment under the Constitution than an objection not based on free exercise? I agree that they they have different treatment, and uh, I just I just don't agree that either the Constitution or uh, United States statute uh, never protects secular objections. Uh, they obviously do in, in vast and expansive ways that that Ian has overlooked. I've already mentioned the dozens of statutes passed uh, in the wake of Roe versus Wade, and ever since, even uh, even in Obamacare, which say that you can have moral objections. Obamacare itself says that uh, moral objections to suicide cannot be violated uh, by the states. And that's, that's in a long tr- uh, tradition that goes cert- back uh, at least to the military draft, where the Supreme Court itself ruled that people with philosophical objections uh, should be treated the same as people with religious objections. And so uh, if the government itself, uh, this, is what, this is the danger that the government falls into when it oversteps uh, its jurisdiction. It starts forcing uh, people in their private lives to to advance the government's ideological agenda, especially on controversial issues like abortion. Because when it starts doing that, uh, it runs it, it runs into its own rationale, and, and that's what it did in this case. It said that this mandate was only for women who want it, but now we're seeing it force it on women who don't want it, uh, and for whom it, it, it benefits no one. Uh, because this is an ideological question. It's a question of stamping out dissent. Organizations that disagree with the Obama administration's view of sexuality and abortion uh, shall not be uh, admitted, uh, permitted in this country under the, uh, if the administration has its way to continue to operate according to their own beliefs. Uh, no, dissent will not be brokered, and, and that's really uh, something that's inconsistent with uh, uh, American uh, tradition of freedom, uh, and, and it had nothing to do with Lochner. Ian, I want to take you uh, in a slightly different direction mm-hmm. um, to talk about Kim Davis for a second, mm-hmm. uh, the county clerk who was um, jailed for uh, based on her refusal to issue um, same-sex marriage licenses. Is her case different than the March for Life case? Uh, if so, how so? And if it's not different, why not? I mean, it is certainly different. I mean, her case is especially weak in a, for a different reason than the March for Life cases is particularly weak. You know, the, the March for Life case, like I said, is a weak case because it's trying to cram a non-religious liberty, a very novel non-religious liberty principle into a law, into a constitution and statutes that don't support it. Um, Kim Davis, you know, she's at least making a religious argument. Um, but she has two problems. You know, one is that she is ultimately making her religious liberty argument in the service of a kind of animus. 
you know, in the service in this case of anti-gay animus. And the Supreme Court has fairly consistently said in the Piggy Park case dealing with race, and the lower courts have said in other cases dealing with gender, that that kind of animus cannot be the basis for um, a, a, a religious liberty claim. Um, the other problem she has, which is an even bigger problem, is that she is a government employee. Um, you know, she, you know, the, the right that she is claiming here isn't some religious liberty right in the abstract. She is claiming the right to continue to collect a very generous paycheck from the government, even though she refuses to do her job. Um, and that is not a constitutional right that she has. That would be like if I called the police because someone was breaking into my home, or I called the fire department because my home was burning down, and the cop or the fireman said, well, we're not going to come out because I disapprove of you. That, 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 you know, that is not how religious accommodations work. That's not how a government can function. And if she wants, you know, if she objects on religious grounds to doing her job, then she has a very simple remedy, and that's simply to resign. Matt, would you agree with that? No. Uh, and I think that the Kim Davis case raises a lot of, of, of questions that are bigger than the Kim Davis case. Uh, in particular, um, the people uh, who say in response to the Kim Davis case that, well, uh, we really just need to have these, uh, these religious objections uh, take, take, go out of the public discussion. I think that, that there's a fundamental inconsistency there between that view and the view of Martin Luther King Jr., who said uh, very clearly that unjust laws can be judged by whether they're in accord with eternal law. People have a moral obligation to uh, uh, disobey unjust laws. And he, he gave a rationale for civil disobedience, peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience that accepts the penalty in order to change the conscience of society that uh, is inconsistent with the radical secular views that we're seeing today uh, in response to the Kim Davis case. And, and the problem framing the Kim Davis situation as really different because she's a government employee is the problem that I've been raising all along throughout our discussion, is that the government continues to co-opt private citizens into its own agenda. Ultimately, uh, the, the, the people who uh, work at Hobby Lobby, the people who run for March for Life, they're now all deputized uh, by the government. And so the same rationale, oh, well, if you're, if you're uh, a religious person, you can't be a government employee, essentially says if you're a religious person, you can't participate in the political and ec economic life of the nation at all. That is what Justice Alito pointed out in his decision in Hobby Lobby. And that's why, regardless of what happens with the particular accommodation under the Obamacare mandate, the Hobby Lobby decision is going to stand, I think, uh, for a long time as a, as a very large uh, precedent that was five to two, because two dissenters didn't join on this point, uh, against the idea that we're going to exclude religion from the realm of business or from, from any realm just because the federal government has decided it wants to take over that realm. Uh, the Hobby Lobby decision uh, rejects that, and, and I think it did so correctly. Okay, thank you, Matt. And uh, we have time for one last question. Uh, so we started with Matt. Let me go to Ian for that. And just here, I'm just curious whether you think Hobby Lobby will continue to stand a year. Uh, think about a year from now. Will we be having the same conversation again, or do we think things will be different in terms of constitutional law? 
Well, I think, I think that there's two things that are up in the air. I mean, one is what ultimately happens in the fill-out-the-form cases. If, if the Supreme Court follows what is now the unanimous consensus of the courts of appeals and holds that the fill-out-the-form accommodation is acceptable, then, you know, like I said before, I think that Hobby Lobby will be remembered as a blip. Um, if the Supreme Court... Um, goes against the overwhelming consensus in the lower courts, then it's going to lead to, you know, some fairly disturbing incursions on the rights of third parties. Um, And ultimately, whether that is going to stand, I think, comes down to the result of this upcoming presidential election. Um, I think that, you, you know, if a Democrat wins in this upcoming presidential election, it is very unlikely that they are going to say that religious objections can be wielded as a sword, or their nominees to the Supreme Court are going to say that religious objections can be used as a sword in order to cut down the rights of other people. Um, If a Republican wins, then, you know, several Republican candidates have been quite explicit, not just in endorsing um, the the, the Hobby Lobby decision, but in endorsing the challengers and the fill out the form cases. Um, So... You know, ultimately, this isn't something that's going to be decided by clever legal arguments. This is going to be decided by who is nominating the next set of justices to the Supreme Court. Thank you. So, Matt, you have the last word, though I regret not much time. That's fine. Uh, I I think uh, the issue ultimately is whether people are able to live and work according to their beliefs, are able to earn a living for their family uh, without the government. coercing them and mandating them to carry out the government's controversial agenda. And I hope that uh, I hope that these cases continue to uphold the freedom of people to do that. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Ian. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Yanachi. Research was excellently provided by Nicandro Yanachi and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue to today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed at capital constitution, capital CTR. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions about the show to editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a new podcast featuring lectures and debates presented live here at the National Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The most recent episode features a lecture on democracy in the digital age by Harvard Law professor and former Obama administration official Cass Sunstein. It's not to be missed. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all our sibling podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. And finally, Despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this great podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. Please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Mike Gerhardt.